humans, right humans checking in. Right beep, before, beep, beep. right before getting on here, I'm dealing with annoying humans, uh, like grade appeals. I hate it when a student sends you a grade appeal and then you respond with like four pages of explanation, and then they still send you back another response and try to like argue with you. Oh, I was getting that here. too. It's like, oh, Aren't I haven't those the been worst? here. I haven't been here at all for the past four months. Can I like hand in my outstanding work? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, no. This is this is the part of our job that needs to be automated. If our <laughs> yes, like our, yes, the rest of it's going to be automated, uh, like regardless of our protestations. But this part, if it were automated, that'd be great. If something just, like, just like quote departmental policy and senate policy to student emails. <laughs> that would be just better than me. Well, we can't. We can't use GPT right now. It's down, right? It, yeah, I have this it's one. Been working. Yeah. It's been working here and there, but yeah. Like, so, oh, you're telling me that they missed eight classes and eight tutorials and has haven't handed in any work, but you're telling me that they've been doing the readings? <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely a sense that all the relaxations around COVID have also affected, like, like there's a need to reassert academic integrity, like all yes. of the deadline pushing, all of the no more doctor's notes stuff, like, like it's just reinforcing the business side of the university rather than the academic side, which is just like, I don't know, classic bullshit. You're so right about that. You're so right about that, that academic integrity. And actually speaking of the chat bot, um, I, I was also having a discussion with a professor about the implications of this. And uh, that th this professor agrees very much that uh, that this is a game changer. And I don't know where I think we're, we're, we're actually planning to maybe do some sort of meeting with the faculty in the department to talk about um, what, if anything, is possible. What like my prediction, I think I said this to the uh, this pro professor and also an administrative person that we were we had an email thread about this. And I, my prediction is basically that I think by the time September comes around, a majority of undergrad students will realize the capabilities of this and will, to various degrees, be taking advantage of this technology yeah. to complete their assignments. Oh, like some of the integrity issues are definitely around showing up. This is not a distance education institution. This is not a place where it's like, oh, I missed that assignment. Like, can I just have a redo? It's like the further that gets pushed the the harder it's going to be to come back to that and be like <laughs> universities are respectable institutions with high standards versus like yeah we'll do whatever you want just get your degree yes. standards are being questioned both by covid and then now this ai i feel like this whole idea of academic <laughs> standards are being called into question yeah that's a good tie-in yeah sorry pills i interrupted you well the benefit will be that you don't have to read any of those you know the the fail papers that are like completely unreadable not even fail yeah. papers like c papers that are like unreadable but you, you can't still... figure out what they're trying to say yeah that there'll be no You're... excuse for those anymore so that'll that'll be that'll be nice the ones that will be nice. need I, a I, feedback I, I was i was thinking about that but i know those exact papers where you almost feel like you're some kind of like uh you're like trying to like um what's sift through the sand for like sensible concepts yeah and you're or they like, okay i think I think I understand what they're saying. They use the thesaurus, but use the words wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Or they say thing. like, I will, they make like weird, absurd, strong statements. Like I will prove. I love it when students use, I will prove. Yeah. Right? It's just like, you can, <laughs> like, wow. sorry, in social sciences wow. and humanities, there's no such thing as proving anything. Like you can argue, you can <laughs> yeah, offer and, evidence and for. And also you're yeah. in one, you're in like a hundred level course. 
Yeah. yeah. You can, you're not going to prove, you're not going to be proving anything here. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, plausibility is the best you can hope for. Anyway, last week, and I, some of the feedback I got from the episode last week talking about education, um, they seem to think that we're overrating the value of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to very well now we're we're gonna do the flip side today because I think that calling any this anything even remotely near consciousness is very stupid. But oh, I want to specify the only thing we were talking about is our our busy work at a, at education institutions where everything is prescribed and you're basically following a formula and anyway and you write you know, passably vanilla papers that just string words together that don't necessarily even demonstrate that you have any intelligence or intelligent thought behind it. You're just handing it in to complete an assignment. That specifically, very specifically and narrowly, is what this AI is going to entirely overturn. But exactly. if you think that this is the singularity or some shit like that, we are gonna we're gonna dissuade you of that notion. Did some people think today. that we thought that this computer was approaching consciousness? Because I feel like no, we no, no, no. Said I, no. I don't think anyone said that. I think they just said you're overrating like how good this actually is. It's kind of stupid. But yeah. in our defense, students are kind of stupid. Almost. Yes, always. that's so that's exactly that's, the point. Yeah, that's I mean, exactly a the lot point of the that emails was, yeah. we write could be automated. Definitely. Yes. Like we were talking about earlier, if it could just cite policy, recognize key phrases and cite the, the, the appropriate passages like of whatever the syllabus. Right. Like so many questions. I'm just like, read the damn yeah. syllabus and like all the answers are there. It's really just a very good kind of stupid form of intelligence which is most yeah. of our life our most most of a human life is kind of stupid intelligence okay exactly so. and i think i, th- I think I, I thought i stressed this in the last episode because i think at the time i was responding to something a professor tweeted about how like some other twitter thread that was like this is overrated and and if you think that this is gonna like write good papers then you don't know what a good paper writing is and it's like no no you're missing the point like the point is a vast majority of undergrad papers are not good. They're not good writing. And this is yeah, going to do a much I, better job at writing not good things way better than right now. And like, that's the problem. Yeah. I think we're, we're so close to the whole process. No one expects them to be good, right? No one expects an undergraduate paper to be good. Exactly. You expect yeah. it to be passable and that's it. That's like, the point of it. We're, we're so close to this whole process that we just see potential procedural things that may be altered by this smart technology. But I mean, fair fair enough. We were maybe indulging in a little bit of paranoid speculation based on like how this may impact our jobs, <laughs> which is obviously extremely indulgent. And yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I hope maybe today we can maybe move this towards a more theoretical ground too. you know, like the bread and butter of what critical theory and philosophy, right? Like trying to frame something with, with a theoretical approach and yeah. talking about the schools of thought that are interested in this sort of topic. <laughs> One of them, of course, you can bring along your Marxism, your postmodernism, your posthumanism and other, you know, other frames of reference in critical theory and yeah. today we're probably going to talk a little bit about the transhumanist <laughs> i don't know if you could call it a wing of posthumanism or transhumanism as just 
my theory being that it's just a uh, kind of a STEM-centered wet dream, a kind of ideology of engineering. Yeah, I mean, I think that this, you know, these recent developments, to me, actually get us no closer to, like, some kind of singularity. In my opinion, they don't, like, it's just really cool algorithms that can do really cool things, but but were, I, don't, I don't see us, and I guess we'll have to define because uh, there's a couple different senses of that word singularity, but in, on the computational end, yeah, I mean, like, I, I I don't think there's any. I don't think this has any any philosophical implications about like AI consciousness or AI self awareness or any of that stuff. It's just like a really cool way. It's a really basically, it's just a really cool system of pattern recognition in language. Yeah, that's I, able to be like to to be somewhat predictive based on that pattern recognition. Like that's all. Yeah, I kind of thought of it afterwards as it's an information management tool. That's all it is. If you, if you exactly. look at the world as a giant library of information, this is just a really effective tool for calling up, storing, retrieving, and kind of whatever, mashing up, montaging that information. That's all it is. It doesn't generate anything new. You know, it doesn't, it just manages what's already there. It, yeah, like that's people kind of have that instinct: bullshit in, bullshit out, right? It depends Precisely. on what we do with it in the end. And I mean, yeah, but it is fun this talk because it does kind of touch on you know a singularity event must have happened in the history of the Matrix movie or the the, the host of other movies that feature a self intelligent, self aware technology like uh, I don't know what's that like that Avengers one, Age of Ultron. There's a, there's a whole shitload of them. There's Terminator, Will Smith movies, I think, maybe more than one. I Skynet, Skynet, Skynet became self-aware at whatever date it was. I can't do yeah. an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent. But yeah, like Skynet became self-aware on whatever September 29th, 1997, and whatever. Yeah, this dystopic imaginations are, are ran away with us, but we're we're aware of that. I think that's that's it's okay to indulge in every now and then. Well, we yeah. have a few terms to get through and to maybe define. So AI plus transhumanism plus singularity. I guess you could just f call this Silicon Valley philosophy because <laughs> Silicon Valley philosophy, a lot of these, um, a lot of the tech companies have their in-house philosophers, which I find very funny, the, the hyper real philosophers. And a lot of the, what they say, today we read Kurzweil, by the way, um, but a lot of what is called philosophy is just like people speculating on completely untestable future scenarios, and they are allowed to call that philosophy for some reason. So I found that I found that kind yeah, of this funny. is a lot like what like oh, what's her name Atlas shrugged and those sort of things were yeah, doing they for love Silicon Anne Valley Rand. people. They're, they yeah. love Anne. They're so dumb. This God. is like an evolution of Anne Randianism into a weird like techno dystopic dystopic line of thinking. That's that's what. They also have a new utilitarian um, ethics that they are branding. I forget what it's called, but they have a utilitarian ethics. They also value stoicism. Of course, like anything that allows them to be more indifferent to the world in general. And again, like ethics acting as a self-justification, not so different from what you would find in any kind of like bioethics course that tries to teach, you know, like read a textbook about bioethics and and medical procedures or something, right? It's kind of a self-justification ethics. <laughs> that's, that's all it really is in the end. It's, it's again, it's my... 
theory, it's all a kind of a STEM wet dream, a kind of STEM ideology, fetishistic ideology. Well, wait, what is? So like, let's just um, get clear on what we're talking about here. Are you just saying like the chatbot itself? Or I think the the I guess the singularity style. Oh, the singularity thinking yeah. Yeah. that maybe is gets evoked when we start ringing the alarms about AI advancements and these sorts of things, these new things that take us. Yeah, like singularity, right? So that's the term that means. Um, the it is we've already said it. It's the moment where AI becomes like switches on, becomes true, becomes self aware, and some people. You use that term as the technological singularity, and then I don't. This, sorry, uh, I don't think it's uh, awareness. It's the moment when it be it becomes able to improve itself without. Yeah, yeah, like write its own code, kind of thing. Figure without, out things. Figure out things on its own. Yeah, I don't know that self awareness is any. Yeah, part it's of true. That. It's true. Having having like a qualia and experience doesn't necessarily need to be the case for the singularity to happen. I guess right. simulating what we would call self awareness is in like the Chinese room or something like that. Or even, or even like if, if you give it um, some kind of objective um, where it can somehow fulfill and reinterpret its own objective in some unexpected way would maybe be like a sign towards the singularity, right? Where it has some kind of, some kind of like its algorithms are built in a way where it'll end up giving us, you know, like I remember one of the hypotheses would be that maybe we would get to a point where we would have such an advanced computer um, kind of intelligence that it would figure out. Uh, solutions to problems we have in the world in ways that we never expected. Like, I don't know, they might f cure cancer based on the information they have because they, they're they so much better advanced, not because they're conscious, but just because the system itself is so advanced that it's able to to reinterpret and 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 rejigger its own kind of objective and programming in a way that, that lets it spit out really, really advanced solutions to problems. Like with the Go, the Go game. Oh yeah, the Go game. Yeah, Go. Yeah, that is that that sort of checkers like game. Well, it's a super complicated checkers. <laughs> only but people Alpha Go, are supposed to be able to be good yeah. at. And it's supposed to be like this form of art, but a the 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 machine learning uh, uh, thing that whatever it is, the it's not an algorithm. Deep learning it's algorithm. A, it's, a, it's a neural net. The neural <laughs> net that beat the best Go player in the world. It wasn't designed to play Go. It wasn't it was like designed as a general learning thing. So it just basically, you apply it to any game. I think it played Dota, which is a video game also. Um, but you just make it play over and over and over again. And because it's a computer, it can play like a million games per hour or whatever it is. Um, and then it begins to recognize patterns that people could never play. So it's kind of like a, a generalized sort of intelligence applied to one specific thing. Yeah, I mean, I remember the consolation prize in that match was that the the player, the human player, made this like really good move that sent the AI on a bit of a loop before it could beat him. And that, and that was like trumpeted as this major like victory, mm -hmm. like I called it consolation prize because the AI still won. But it was like trumpeted out as this major kind of, victory of human intelligence still. It's, it's kind of funny to think about when I remember it must have been what, like eight years ago or something when they had that computer program go on Jeopardy, um, whatever that was called. And I feel like it's kind of funny how at the time people were impressed by that. But this this thing we have now is probably like that you we all just have access to 
I think, I don't know if I actually tested it, but I did ask it one time. I was like, can you answer Jeopardy questions? And it was like, oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> How yeah. could it? It's good at, it's good at language. But I, I think there's another point to this, uh, the AlphaGo thing that people recognize a little bit or don't recognize is that it kind of also speaks to how good human intelligence is because even the person who plays Go professionally has probably played a very small fraction of how many games the AI has played. But because of physical limitations, you can't, we can't practice that much. Um, What's sim also interesting similar about with thinking the, uh, with Dota, Dota is a, is a MOBA video game and it beat the best player in the world. Um, and again, it's not, it, it doesn't break any of the rules of the game. It learns by playing, but it, it can play so much so fast that human intelligence is actually in some way superior. I mean, in a lot of ways superior, but in, superior in that we can learn more by doing it fewer times, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like, and thinking of like analogy and creatively and symbolically is in a way that computers can't, but I, I mean, it, it does fate, it does to a degree force us to confront maybe like our romanticism about like human intelligence as well that there are things that are off limits to artificial intelligence or or information retrieval technologies or some kind of like there's just areas that are like sacred right like it's like marx's thing right everything sacred will be profaned and we have to confront a bit of the like lingering romanticism about how unique humans are in the universe which is a good maybe a good post-humanist point but i think i think the the transhumanists take that to like the umph degree and speculate about you know first the, the ai singularity that's one and then the other way singularity is often used is is the moment we achieve immortality, we're able to, through whatever medical technologies, stem cells, regeneration, whatever, we're able Ch to- Children's blood. Yeah, like this article <laughs> started out like I'm one of the, the one of the older baby boomers and now our generation has this like hope that maybe in our lifetime we'll be able to achieve immort immortality, like long lasting, infinitely prolonged life, which would be, again, the moment of that achievement is like a biological sing singularity, I guess, as well, which is a little bit afield from AI, but like consciousness uploading and AI are kind of beside that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing, the only part of it that's kind of related is really just that question of, of like uploading and computer human interface. But the rest of it, like that medical technology, right? Like organ, you know, um, growing and all those other things. I mean, that's really a biomedical question that yeah, doesn't like, really have like that physical, much to do with artificial intelligence. Yeah, like physical immortality in our bodies versus the moment where AI becomes able to creatively write its own code without be being based on previous human programming or something. Like there's two different ways of looking at it. So we're, we're looking at the, the technological <laughs> AI just like Ultron. <laughs> when 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 do we get Ultron? <laughs> and I I think you are too, Eric. But I am a posthumanist, and I've said that before. Um, it's one of the few things I can identify with without qualifications. But I am a posthumanist, and also an anti-transhumanist. So could could you define uh, could you define posthumanism again? No. <laughs> I mean, 
It's so hard. It's cause a lot of things. It's a, a lot so of how different you identify versions it? of it. Um, how, so what part of which aspect of it do you identify with? Well, there's actually several versions of posthumanism. I think uh, Eric. Well, here's another way to tends, ask the question. I Eric think I have tends in mind. a little bit more towards the ecological posthumanism, and I tend more towards the technological posthumanism. But the easiest way to define it okay. is to say something like, "We were never human to begin with." Okay, because uh, yeah, well, the the other way of asking the question that I was that occurred to me was, is it more something that you're against rather than something that you're for? Yeah, I mean, I'm. F I think I'm for some, certain things. Yeah, that really like your you your adoption of the position of posthumanism is more like uh, because of a family of views in society that you don't like, and and then that puts you in the posthumanism camp. Um, I just think it's the most descriptively true. It's not the world I prefer, even. It's just the most descriptively true. Okay. So, with respect to consciousness, for example, um, consciousness very very complicated term. Um. To me, it has a lot to do with phenomenology, especially as expressed by Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Um, but outside of that, con like asking, will a computer ever be conscious? My, I, I'm pretty a hard no. Same. But my answer that it's hard no is also to qualify that by saying, but also most humans are not conscious almost all of the time. Yeah. That so that's a, a qualification of consciousness. Saying what well, when we when we speak about that term, it doesn't really apply to people either, except sometimes. Which is to say, something like consciousness is not something that you have or possess. It's not a property. It's like a quality of certain actions. Yeah, I haven't delved like see this problem. I haven't delved very deeply into the philosophy of mind debates and like cognitive science and like the philosophers that are really paying attention to that area which which covers a lot of there's a lot of overlap with like analytic philosophy cognitive science philosophy of mind and those sorts of approaches so like i tend to just stay away from talking about consciousness at all like it's it doesn't pass the what like the second grade of clarity test right like <laughs> ideas have to be clear and the ideas have to be distinct i.e they have to have like an abstract definition that we all agree on and consciousness is not that <laughs> it's like a thing we think we're familiar with it we think we know it when we see it but we can't define it and it, it's well it's we're a, gonna we're gonna have a to big define question it. mark it's a big huge question mark right i don't know yeah the phenomenological approach is, is probably the most congenial although posthumanists do have problems with phenomenology so like it's, well, it's let's get it's not an let's easy get the AI, let's get the ai's definition of consciousness what well, do you think we're gonna I just asked it. we're gonna have to define it even though we can't fully define it, of course but you know within the context of an hour and 15 minute podcast we can come up with some sort of definition what does the ai say the ai says consciousness is the state of being aware of one's thoughts feelings and surroundings it is the quality or state of being conscious or having an awareness of one's own existence and the external world. It is the ability to experience and per perceive the external world as well as to think and reason. In short, consciousness is the quality or state of being aware of one's own thoughts and feelings as well as the external world. That kind of word, a re repetitive that, statement. Yeah, it is. That word just though, it kicks the can down the road because it says it's awareness of thoughts and feelings. But what is awareness? Because the awareness part is the conscious part. Yeah. Uh, right. I guess. Like, how do you define how do you define awareness? Because everything has awareness. Fucking mushrooms have awareness. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I could try to I could try to ask it. Don't use the word awareness in your in your in your definition. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, I mean, you get into the Derridian problem, right? Where it's like every word in the definition is going to refer to other words ad infinitum. Like you'll get to that point, and then sort of realize, okay, like when when we go back and formulate our approach to this, you can you can map it into traditions of thinking, right? So like the consciousness approach of of that Kant opened up, right? Like the unity of apperception, like the unity of the ego. That's that's what, you know, that's the way to approach consciousness philosophically is to take a position for or against like the Kantian kind of, you're either an anti-Kantian and you're totally against any talk of a transcendental subject or you adopt some modification of the Kantian view, which is- All right, I got a new definition. Okay. So here it says consciousness is the state of being able to perceive, think, and feel. It is the subjective experience of being alive and having a sense of self. It is the ability to have subjective experiences and introspection and to be able to control one's actions and behavior. Look, it did the same thing. Now it just replaced awareness with what? Perception, introspection, and a subjective experience. So that doesn't do anything to define consciousness because now we just have to define those things and also differentiate how they don't apply to mushrooms. But if you want, if you want, if I can just apply this back to what I said about posthumanism as we were never humans in the first place, all of these words that the AI is using and that others use to describe consciousness are these terms like reflection, self-reflection introspection so you're thinking about yourself and immediately then if you're thinking about yourself there's a question of how you think and all always this runs up against the problem of language because usually your thoughts about yourself like am i thinking this is a linguistic phenomenon and the linguistic phenomenon is now no longer self reflection because you didn't invent your language you came in to a system of language so immediately when you say now oh no we are thinking about our subjective experience as soon as language becomes a part of that mix and i can't imagine any way that language does not become a part of that mix then the subjective nature of it is tainted because language is not something that is subjective solely it's something that is outside so all the words, as soon as you say, oh, okay, now we have to figure out this word, now we have to figure out the next word, the, the self that is supposed to be conscious at the center of this whole apparatus, it's, we could say, polluted. There is no pure subjectivity, but everything about consciousness is supposed to be dependent on and reflecting upon this subjectivity. Though, though in any case, the thing that I f think these definitions are, are missing a little bit that I would like to add, if we were trying to figure out what it is, is that there's a background implicit question of why behind consciousness. Or should I, I should just say in conscious actions. Conscious actions are an answer to a, an implied question of why. I think my little Turing test then for if something has consciousness would be, uh, can they experience boredom? 
boredom which might be related to having a sense of self like it might be the case that it's impossible to be bored if you don't have a sense of self and also implied i mean i say that because implied in boredom is there's a why like why why do i think why am i why do i do what i do exactly rather than just doing things so i don't think animals get bored um, yeah. it doesn't I, I, seem I'm like willing it. to, i'm certainly... willing to face some criticism from that if people disagree Dogs know, seem does, to get does, kind of bored. I was just going to say dogs seem like they're bored because they hassle you. They want to do more things. They want to engage. They want to connect. True, true. But I, I think the difference that I would draw there, a lot of things want to engage and connect. Uh, proteins want to engage and connect. But there's a difference in sitting in a state and understanding I'm in a state of boredom and this will solve it as opposed to just doing things. I mean, I, I'm not going to go deeply into this, but I mean, the... Animal studies folks have definitely confirmed that animals do have something we've been denying them, right? Like they evoke a kind of richness in the wild. They evoke a very reduced kind of mental life when they're in captivity. You know, the range of signs that monkeys can use is much higher when they're in the wild and versus when they're being in a lab tested or like, you know, raised in a human built environment, you know, sociality and things like that. Like we have to think consciousness, if it's real, it's already done work in the world. Right. And a lot of what we take for granted is going to be related to that. So it's a, it's a, it's a historical question in many ways. Right. And philosophy's always been concerned with what is mind, what is consciousness, what is thought. So it's not like we're just going to have this new, oh, transhumanism, posthumanism. They're, they're here to solve the problem. Finally. No, no, no. These, these problems are just like, fundamental grist for what's interesting about doing philosophy i was gonna say what you're making me think of actually is and i i need to investigate this <clears throat> for further but um it strikes me that there could be some overlap uh between kind of the more continental uh post-humanism view and then there's like the very analytic philosophers who my buddy who's a like kind of a youtube in the streamer political commentary world mouthy infidel he's like loves this view in the analytic philosophy I think it's called eliminative eliminativism or like where you just basically deny that consciousness exists. You deny that qualia is a real thing and you just say that there are processes and inter interactions that happen. Um, but I don't know. I'd have to obviously investigate more, but it just sounds like there might be some 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 overlap. Uh, kind of like there's overlap between like Donald Davidson and Derrida. Maybe there's some overlap between like posthumanism and like this. Eliminative, yeah, eliminative. Fuck that word is fucking impossible. Eliminative <laughs> materialism, I think. Yeah, like yeah. it's just an epiphenomenon of systems of interacting particles. Exactly, and, exactly. Like, it's, that it's, is Dennett's it's view. A, yeah, it's like a. Oh, safe, is it? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's uh, that deflationary view of yeah. uh, uh, right, which is like characteristic. It's a kind of idealism, I guess, <laughs> behind the staunchly materialistic front it puts on there's a deep-seated idealism in that stance but yeah. it's like yeah i mean yeah if you're a monistic materialist even like a spinozist you might hold that view in in some way shape or form i mean again it's always like it's like we just have this concept of consciousness it's like oh we need to define it and then it's solved I mean, no i don't know it's it's something i just tend to avoid well, this is why I'm I'm a posthumanist with respect to almost every other thing you could say that is unique about humans, whether it's sign usage or creativity or anything like that. I'll go, well, there's plenty of stuff that does that. But the why question 
not that the why even has an answer. Of course, it it doesn't. We spend our our nights uh, unable to sleep, staring at the ceiling, thinking about it. But I don't think any animal wonders why they are, and we do. But only we do. Very rarely, <laughs> very rarely, some of the time. But I think this recession, like the entrance of the question into the phenomenological horizon. Uh, I don't think computers will ever do it, and I don't think that uh, animals do it either. Yeah, I remember the best, <clears throat> the best depiction of AI in like uh, a movie was in the movie uh, Ex Machina. I think that was a great one. And what I yeah. liked about that was that you could tell that some of the hypothetical androids were taking were taking seriously well i think wittgenstein was kind of more of an influence but also there was implications of like the importance of embodiment um also the importance of desire for consciousness and that's something that i've always thought was interesting i remember even being an undergrad and arguing with people about ai and i was just like why like so i i if you accept the conclusion that maybe a computer could be self-aware i know that's not obvious at all and weird but if you accept that then to me, the question arises with, okay, so it's self-aware. Why would it do anything? Why would it care? It doesn't have, like desire is I think fundamental to some kind of, um, to action, to like doing something. And it's like you, so just because something is aware and has like a sense of, well, I mean, that's a complicated question, but selfness must be somehow tied to desire. But the point is, I just think that uh, what I liked about that movie, at least is just the way that it made a hypothetical artificial intelligence, it only made sense because it had desire. I think at one point in the movie, he even describes it as sexuality um, or something like that, which to me just implied a form of like desire and embodiment. Um, and those two things, I think, seem like crucial aspects for anything that would resemble uh, a human experience. Yeah, kind of immediately weaponized all that to achieve freedom. Yeah, I think that yeah, exactly that that's a one of the best uh, depictions. But the one thing that I think maybe it was missing is like for our or at least the way we see desire or have desire even or our desire is inextricably linked to uh, the fact that we're mortal and going to die. So like time is limited. So what you do matter. This is a. Heidegger's being towards death, in case anyone wants to wonder where I'm getting it from. But I wonder why that machine, why that machine would want freedom um, without death. Because presumably she could also just sit in that room for eternity and it wouldn't make any difference to her if she's uh, not a biologically degrading organism. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think that you're right. I think that could have been a nice addition, but I also think it's plausible to imagine uh, that an android, a hypothetical android in that situation with desire would also feel the possibility of death because of the creator who it's revealed later in the movie went through a bunch of iterations of the android, right? And then deactivated them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not here to play apologetics for that movie. It's obviously not perfect. Well, <laughs> I, I mean that as a not a criticism of the movie either. Yeah. Just a general question of like, why would, even if a machine had what's, you know, called a general why general, yeah. then why would it care about anything? It's true. It's true. I mean, and that is actually exemplified even in Heidegger's concept of care, which is, I think, often misunderstood. But really, it just means like 
the significance, uh, which is related to its being towards death, which which for Heidegger is obviously fundamental to all of that. Yeah, being towards death is what makes us care, have care. I mean, one of the ways, one of the reasons that the question is important is, is again, for like ethical reasons though, right? If something has consciousness, then we need to extend some kind of ethics towards it or, or put it in some kind of ethical framework that is and share the space with our ourselves and human beings, right? Like people talk, if COVID is conscious, according to these crazy deep ecologists, like then we shouldn't kill it. We should let us wipe us, let it wipe us out. Or if animals are conscious, we shouldn't use them for food. Now, if robots are conscious, right? We have to, we can't treat them like, um, like slave chattel, right? Like it comes back to those sorts of ethical questions. And that's, that's what makes it important. It's like, I remember what Matt was saying on the on our hundredth anniversary episode, right? Like getting into philosophy because you like <laughs> you mean hundredth episode? Sorry, we haven't been around for a hundred years. A hundred, our hundred, we we've passed the singularity already, and now it's like <laughs> f- abstract philosophical puzzles versus you know getting into philosophy because there's like real pressing questions that need addressing at every moment in history, at every turn. And the, the, those two sorts of like, you know, the analytic philosophers tend towards the conceptual puzzles. What is consciousness? And then for us, it's like, why the fuck is it important that we define that other than kind of ethical and political questions that might arise from it? That's what makes it important, not the abstract definitional question. Anyway. Well, we are important to ourselves, goes without saying, and you don't need consciousness to do that. Uh, but I wanted to ask you what you thought about this. Tra- these transhumanists. This is like Silicon Valley philosophy. Uh, part of it. It goes. It goes with it. But they they seem to be very obsessed with their mortality. A lot of them happen to be billionaires. So I think that probably has something to do with it. When you just when you have uh, an amount of money that you can't possibly spend in one lifetime, then the natural next thought is to go, okay, how can I live past this lifetime? Um, and they're doing some crazy shit trying to figure that out. But that that is a, a very important point of this singularity. Well, not I, I shouldn't say the singularity um, thing because that's supposed to be separate. But they're very excited about the development of technology in the way that prevents... Uh, their own their own deaths i i don't i don't this obsession with living forever um yeah, well, I mean, it, I, a part of me a part of me gets it but another part of me thinks it's kind of silly well i brought well, this up like, because we read the kurzweil article so yeah, the link yeah. will be in there he has conceptions about death and no matter what you want to say about kurzweil uh he's a fucking genius um I know it's it. Every single philosophy prof I've ever had shits on him because he's called a philosopher. Uh, he's not a philosopher. I don't. I would not call him that. But he's at least a futurist and a and a fucking genius. Why do you say that? Or is that sarcasm? No, 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 no. He wrote. He wrote his first computer program at the age of oh, fourteen, yeah. when there he's were a only prodigy. when there were only ten computers in the state of New York. So. But this is what yeah, happens when people cool. are really good at something. It's not inaccurate to call uh, Ray Kurzweil a dumbass while he's writing. But I did want to say, outside of outside of his quote unquote philosophy, very good at shit. Yeah. Well, the reason I consider this all to be kind of STEM fantasy ideology 
<laughs> whatever Silicon Valley ideology is because one, you know, the posthumanist critique of anthropocentrism, right? So when you you get you read this article about overcoming the limits of death, um, and you just get the sense, yeah, like this is anthropocentric because it's the the question isn't you know ethical or political. How do we treat you know like what what are the implications of living forever? It's like what can we get? What's what is in this for us? That's always the question at the bottom of it. Is like what's in it for us? You know, immortal life, good. I'm on board. I'm a transhumanist now. I'm going to go into STEM and help this along. Okay, great. But then okay, so I mean, that's the if you accept the frame that there's been a decentering of the subject, and it's kind of authoritative in philosophy, right? Whatever angle you come at it, you could come at it through like Kant and Hegel and Lacan and look at subjectivity that way. Or you can jump on board with like the more post-humanist side of things and post-modern views of and, and see the subject as decentered in that way, whatever way you want to see it. Like transhumanism just goes back to a kind of naively realistic liberal humanism that ultimately ends with the triumphant disembodiment of the human subject, the no longer being held back by the fetters of our biological existence, right? And it's always our and we and human is always just the, the subject of everything that's written in transhumanism. So, I mean, that's the, in, but when you're reading it, the individual questions are so cool. Look at these things. Stem cell regeneration. I don't know what else, what whatever other kinds of technologies they might be waiting for to come along to help this process along, like neural hookup network stuff, like whatever Elon Musk has got going on right now. But those questions again are always always anthropocentric. They never they never take you know. Again, real philosophy, right? They never, they don't take it seriously. They're just like, we're doing our own thing here. We're we're mythologizing AI. That's what it is. Also, there's no purpose to the project except immortality. It's immortality. Period. Like normally, you would, I would think, if you were conscious, maybe if you were conscious, you'd wonder why do I want to live to get forever? What do I want to do with my time? And all the all these questions. And I wonder. I wonder what would happen to a human mind if like just suppose for a second that it could be converted to to binary and uploaded or whatever your your first your first year in the in the machine would be probably pretty cool you wouldn't be bored yet you could do all these different things on a different uh, substrate maybe a lot faster but then what what happens after you're alive for 20 years in the machine or or 50 years or 100 years or a thousand years in the machine i think everyone's just going to commit suicide if even if that were possible it wouldn't take long i don't think it would take 20 years from you being in a machine before i wanted yeah. to commit suicide like you could even ask the question about you know when, when we did our episode on personal identity and like continuity of consciousness uh, it's like you could even do that in a single person if you're able to even just buy a lot, not through being uploaded, just keeping someone alive biologically forever, right? Like at what point are they are they the same person through that whole existence? 
and so then are you really living forever if you you need like some kind of crazy perfect memory i think derek parfit in that article we when we went heavily into that analytic dive there like he he had this consideration of like the mm -hmm. continuity of consciousness and personal identity in hypothetical beings that could live forever and he he actually used that as one of his star trekky kinds of uh thought experiments to frame the question of personal identity and memory all beginning with kind of John Locke's dictums about personal identity and those questions like transhumanists are just not interested in that because it's just a big fucking PR campaign for engineering and like and nanotechnology that's what it is that's the what the ideology is concealing is it's just apologetics for the technology industry it's not real th thought <laughs> can i can i ask a question here about post-humanism and humanism because i think i still find myself just like not really understanding the perspective but i guess just from an outsider perspective it seems to me there's kind of two ways in which you could take up humanism versus transhumanism and there's one which is kind of like a moral humanism or a moral post-humanism where yeah like there's a kind of ethical there's something ethically problematic about looking at everything from an anthropocentric view that like puts the human first it's like yeah i'm on board with that but then there's kind of like an epistemological there's probably more but i guess there's an epistemological one which is like we are just everything that we interpret in the world is through a human perspective and that's unavoidable because we are human beings unless i guess you just wanted to f d deny the existence of human beings but since our perceptual capacities our phenomenological embodied capacities are human insofar as that term points to an organism, then I don't understand how you could be an epistemological post-human. You know, that that takes place in the context of confrontations, again, in on the grounds of postmodernism and postmodern culture between, you know, a Marxist perspective coming from like Althusser and Friedrich Jameson, big 20th century Marxists, and then the new strains of post-structuralist, post-modern thinking that that don't like totalizing views and emphasize particularity. Yeah. And yeah. the fundamental fragmentariness. You can't think the total totality. So there's certain, you know, a theoretical confrontation there that has to take place. So, you know, decentering of the human subject on the side of post-modernism, let's just collectively call it all that, on the post-humanist postmodernism. Their their decentering of the subject is yeah kind of what you're asking questions about, whereas the Marxist worry about that is it blocks solidarity, it, just to put it in an extremely crude way, you know yeah yeah, yeah. it blocks the coming to, like we we have a historical being as human subjects interpolated whatever you want to call it in this and if we disavow that. As posthumanists seem to do, then we block a kind of really important political perspective coming from the Marxist side. So I don't, I don't think that answers the question. But the reason post postmodernists, posthumanists want to get away from anthropocentrism is is because what you were describing, kind of. Yeah, no, I get that. I think, but then it I brings think... up the problems you were asking about. Is like, okay, we can't. Like, what's Jane Bennett's answer in Vibrant Material, in the Vibrant Material book she wrote? Um, you know, in order to get away from 
anthropocentrism, we have to cultivate anthropomorphism more consciously, more more deliberately cultivate anthropomorphism. Because yeah, we can only think things Kantian perspective, right? We can only think things according to the structures of consciousness that are present. Everything's already interpreted for us in a certain way as we begin thinking. Yes. And we have to think through that, right? And I don't know. If you're a realist, maybe there's some well, independent non-human reality out there. If you're an idealist, you don't believe that and you, you well, go yeah, the yeah, other for way. Sure. I, mean, I mean, really what I had in mind is just sometimes it feels like this, the post-humanism is sold on kind of moral grounds or like like in this sense of being against anthropocentrism. And I guess intuitively to me, it just doesn't seem to be the case that you have to be an epistemological post-humanist um, in order to accept the critiques of anthropocentrism. Like, I feel like you would still be like, yeah, we're coming at everything from a human perspective that's unavoidable. Like, that's how our uh, kind of like the ontology of, of like everything is, you know, unavoidably we're trapped in the in, in the in the cage of our humanity. Well, at the same time being like that also leads to all these biases and problems that can that can lead to underappreciation or under or like abuse of the planet and all these things. And I feel like though you can hold those two things at the same time. Do you know me to be a moralist, Victor? No, no, I don't think that you're a moralist. I'm not saying that that's why you but I, but I feel like sometimes that no. it's sold. It like I feel like in general, when I hear post humanism sold, it's often in that frame. Yeah, that's those fucking sort of animal like. studies people, you know. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on if it's going to alienate all of, all like a, a whole host of left-wing theory that should be explored further. Yeah, I think more and more lately, as I've been writing my dissertation, I find myself realizing how much my kind of, like, agreement with a philosophical school sort of stops at psychoanalysis and phenomenology. And once we start to go into the post-structuralism, post-modernist, it's, it stops being convincing to me. Um, even yeah. though they say a lot of interesting things, which has already achieved a kind of decentering of the subject, right? We're conditioned by our historical circumstances. That's unconscious. We're conditioned by language. We're conditioned even post-Darwin. Habit we're, and all that stuff. Our body. Habit evolution yeah like, exactly -con like they've already done that like we don't need to go i mean we always need to go back to that terrain and and keep working it over in a, in a way we don't need to like wash all that away and start again <laughs> with a kind of post-humanist radical anti-anthropocentrism that's exactly but why i I'd don't rather that's exactly build. why i stopped there because i think we've already that already decenters the subject enough to me it's like and then yeah I mean, well, that's, I mean, that just all circles back to like reading transhumanist stuff. Yeah, they're anthropocentric, but I think from maybe a more Marxist perspective, they are idealistic too. They have no sense of historical embeddedness of their own points of view. They don't attempt to historicize themselves. They just take it like they're describing reality in an unfiltered, privileged kind of way. And who are their main philosophers? So there, so we mentioned. Did we mention anyone? I mean, we mentioned Kurzweil, who's really a futurist. Um, Bostrom. There's Peter Thiel. Bostrom is one. Bostrom. Of them. You think Peter Thiel's a philosopher? No, no, I don't oh. think he's a philosopher. Uh, I don't think he's a philosopher. Uh, Menchus, who's that other guy? Menchus Moldbug. Yes, that's uh, that's actually Curtis Yarvin. Yeah, these these uh, transhumanists. There's a Venn diagram overlap with just weird and who weird and fucking and reactionaries. 
I also noticed that Rene Girard is becoming very popular in these circles, too. Yeah, because they're fucking trad weirdo. Yeah, it's like tech Catholic. That's probably why. But Rene Girard says some really interesting, cool things about mimesis, like, um, I think. I mean, I remember kind of reading a little bit of his Oh, stuff. they're reading like mimetic in terms yeah, mimetic of mimetic like... desire? Yeah. Damn. Like, so there's this guy who recently has been popularizing uh, Rene Girard's ideas, and he's actually a distant cousin of Ben Burgess, Luke Burgess. Uh, wrote a book called Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And he, I think, hung around with like Peter Thiel and all these people. And they all love this, this idea of like the, the kind of, it's the kind of self-help potential of Rene Girard's idea of mimetic desire. So it doesn't actually have that much to do with computers and AI, but for, for whatever reason, these ideas are popular in that Silicon Valley world, partly because Peter Thiel got really interested in Rene Girard. Yeah. I wonder what that mimesis imitation kind of part refers to i mean what's what's mimicking what what's what's miming what <laughs> i don't know well i'll ask the ai to give us a summary <laughs> so there's a few yeah. there's a few care why you're looking up the ai there's a few characteristics of like overlap <clears throat> of this um i don't know what we call it silicon valley transhumanism like they're inc- this is uh, you probably picked this up from the article but kurzweil's incredibly optimistic um, still holds to this day. I, I read something else that he wrote a, a little more recently. This is a little bit older, but he just thinks the world has only gotten better, is only getting better. His books are full of graphs of like poverty being eradicated. Com- computer <laughs> processing is getting better. It's uh, It hit me as a bit of a shock because I feel the opposite. I feel like we're we're getting dumber. We're getting less conscious if you want to bring it back to that um but he's just totally stoked like the end of this article ends with um we stand here at the gateway of a new millennium with the oh my with God. the light of the singularity already a faint glimmer on a distant horizon what a truly wonderful time to be alive what an amazing series of challenges lie ahead for humankind along with a remarkable series of opportunities in closing i w- i wish want I wish want to express that's not a typo. I mean, it is a typo, but I'm not misreading. I wish want to express my most fervent desire that each of us be granted the basic immortality wish simply to be given the gift of one more day every day. So of course we we will live forever in the glowing light of the singularity. This is a completely religious concept, by the way, like there's no, yeah. There's no evidence for it. There's no. It, they mm-hmm. speak of it as an as an inevitability, and I think a lot of us actually um, uncritically think of it as an yeah. inevitability. Inevitability sounds like gospel. Yeah, yeah. Examine just, your own teleological points of view. <laughs> no, but th- this is not yeah. an inevitability at all. First of all, and yeah, I am a proponent not. of if I think this singularity happens, it's going to be something called the dumb sing- singularity, where the machine ha- decides on a goal and then just continues to improve towards that goal. But the, it just ends up like wiping out life accidentally in the process. Like it just like decides in silence and we're not going to know. <laughs> yeah. It just decides that uh, everything needs to be the color black. So, so mines the entire earth um, in order to produce 
400 trillion gallons of paint and then just covers everything in it, extincting all life in the process. The dumb singularity. The, what you brought up before that wonderful statement just makes me think, yeah, it's like a very quantitative kind of analysis, right? Graphs, charts, statistics. It's very quantitative, ignoring qualitative entirely, which is like if you get into a social science or a humanities education, right? <laughs> you're taught the difference between quantitative and qualitative research. But this is probably what billionaires – like billionaires are bored because they're already billionaires, like there's nothing to do except become more of a billionaire, and then it's like they're, PR, they're right? so alienated from life that the only purpose they can conceive of themselves as having is to extend life indefinitely. It's PR. They're like mythology. It's the mythology of an investment opportunity for bored billionaires. It's kind this of this actually, yeah. This actually make, kind of makes sense of why they are or some of them are interested in Rene Girard's ideas because mimetic desire. If you have the means to get everything and you're kind of obsessed with and you, you, you observe desires of humanity and you're able to fulfill them all, mimetic desire, by the way, is seems to be what Lacan means when he says like the like desire the is other's the desire. desire. Other. Yeah, yeah. That like desire is desire of the other. It's essentially just a, an argument about how all of our desires for things we we tend to mimic and and fall into. Um, I think when we see like models of how objects are endowed with value by other people we end up buying into those models of what makes something valuable and so we are mimicking the desire of others um so i guess i could see from the perspective of being some silicon valley billionaire or millionaire um how this insight could be repackaged as some kind of a self-help agenda at least the very least you could probably see how and like marginalizing those questions about social and economic inequality and the qualitative questions about experiences of difference and 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 marginality you know it just then papers over those problems by saying but look what this like great future is going to offer us and like all that'll just disappear like by fiat we can just ignore like the central questions about democracy and marxism and, and emancipation we can just ignore those because look where we're headed somewhere great so just don't worry right like that's that's idealism right it's like it's a kind of hostility towards the world because you just imagine that you fantasize whatever that there's some solution to all these problems coming and we shouldn't let it get us down right no mention of those sorts of things in these thinkers because it's just not because again it's like a i mean it's just using old school terms it's like a bourgeois ideology i mean there's super interesting questions taken in taken out of context or taken in isolation from the world they're interesting questions but i mean then then it's like okay so fucking what where we live forever and even if it is right then there's the suggestion like okay so now we're going to need like an, a, a priesthood of elites to manage this technology and dole it out care very carefully to those who deserve it who are who can be apostatized into their immortal race of new gods right like it's it kind of reminds me of the priesthood the atomic priesthoods that they were talking about half a century ago with managing nuclear technology because it was such a big important advancement and it's real but then they fall quickly into this sort of like the class antagonism just gets completely papered over with these 
idealistic assumptions. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm, I certainly agree with both of you on the religious aspect um, of how a lot of this comes across. I myself will say that I have, you know, maybe as a child who grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, I, 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 I wish, I don't think it's inevitable, but I do wish for a world where we had somehow cracked the code to be able to, you know, have harness virtually unlimited energy to be able to one day maybe have, you know, as they say, full service automated luxury communism. Um, that would be nice. I don't think it's in any means inevitable, but I think it would be cool. Um, and it seems like hypothetically possible in the sense that we have this giant ball of fusion energy in the sky that, you know, if you could somehow harness it, um, you know, and, and redirect it, you would have basically virtually unlimited energy. But there is certainly like, I think I am a little bit, as the kids say, black pilled on the possibilities for human moral development. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, we pat like humanity pats itself on the back for abolishing slavery and, you know, giving women the right to vote and participate in society. But I do think that there's reasons to think that none of those things would have would have happened if it wasn't for some technological development. Like people didn't do that because they're better human beings. People did that because it was it became possible to to, to have industrial production and and women were able to have birth control pills and all those things were were I think crucial to make those conditions possible. It's a it's a new means of production. It's going to have owners. It's going to have economic uses. It's going to create. A different kind of social field is probably going to emanate from it. A different kinds of relations of production, which is what we were worrying about last week, is our own position within the relations of production that chat AI is going to alter, <laughs> right? But that's you know those are the conditions, not the after effects as much, right? I mean, it's just a it's a conflicting table of values because if you if you yeah, if you look at charts of certain material uh, effects or causes, yeah, of course we're less likely to die from disease. That's awesome. Um, I'm pretty sure an AI wrote the vaccine for the Moderna vaccine for COVID. Is that wow true? I think it wrote it in like I don't know. It wrote it in like two days, basically, which is awesome. That's that's cool. But no matter how much you talk about improved uh, material conditions or less dying of, of random causes or, or anything like that, you go fine. But there's nothing, they have no part of their philosophy is really about the value, the valuable things in experience. Like to stay alive for what? Yeah, that's a good point. And I can say, if you gave me the option to live forever and said, here, you can do this, I would click no uh, 100% of the time. I think that would be terrible and terrifying. I'm trying to get through whatever 70 years I might have. <laughs> I mean, if I if I could have the option to, to live forever, but I wouldn't be immortal, so I could just like kill myself when I got tired of it, I, I would take that. But I wouldn't, want, I, would, I wouldn't want to be forced to be immortal, though. Like, I wouldn't want to be forced so that, like, I'm going to live forever no matter what. <laughs> you don't have a choice. No, they're not going to let Our you. Our generation. Victor, they're not going to let you die. They need slaves. They're going to need slaves. <laughs> you are going to be forced to exist just to do everything that they don't want to do. And on the same, on that same point, it's no surprise that the philosophies that they're interested in also include 
like a really long form utilitarianism. Like as long as I do more good in my life in total, then it doesn't matter what I do now if I fuck someone over in the short term. And they also have this new thing with stoicism too. And I don't know if there's like a sophisticated version of stoicism as opposed to the version that they espouse, which is just indifference is seen as virtue. Right. Or what about what about ancient Greeks, right? They didn't think of slaves as humans, so they can they don't have to enjoy life. That that when they're working for somebody else, that's a, that's when they're at their best. You know, that kind of like you know, you can't just contain those questions, can't contain it all in epistemology and allow common sense to fill in the ethical gaps. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's a, at least that's a recipe for a kind of very disastrous way of thinking that the transhumanists like triumphantly adopt they love it <laughs> yeah their their new form of utilitarianism i can't remember the name it's really pissing me off but it's floating around sam bankman freed said he was this kind of person mm -hmm. but it's something utilitarianism where you just make as much money as you can and then you can like do good things with it after it's like i i can change humanity by becoming wealthy i think bill gates probably started this but it's the like ends justify the means so if i have to fuck someone over in the short run it's okay because my my good deeds later will cancel out my fucking over people in the in the short term which is so convenient for them as is stoicism stoicism is just like the most convenient you can see directly in terms of like a material conditions or class analysis, exactly why they drift towards this stuff. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what idealism kind of is. When on this podcast, you know, we have like our big anti-ideal uh, idealism, good or bad discussions, right? Like here's Kerry Wolf's quote from Adorno when he talks about idealism, says it's a kind of violence, quote, a violence and rage against the materiality and heterogeneity of the preponderance of the object whose non-identity indifference the concept of idealism and identity theory attempts to suppress and master in thought right which is a kind of another way of saying yeah these problems will work themselves out <laughs> we don't need to think of the objective conditions say that capitalism introduces into our lives we don't because they'll just be solved if we come up with the right solutions techno-optimism techno-humanism transhumanism whatever yeah it's a it's not a direct form of violence but it's a very uh diffuse aggressive it, it, it looks like um on its face like no we're gonna retreat why don't you want the good things for us of course we're just gonna put our brains into computers and live longer who wouldn't want that uh we'll get it first of course but then you guys will all get it later but yeah, I think you're right that it's a very diffuse form of violence without, there's no critical reflection either whatsoever. Like just the basic question, you want to live forever? Why? There's no answer to that. It's like, so I can spend my, so I can spend my billion dollars. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Like commodity fetishism, right? Like the magic of the, of AI is kind of just not in question. It's just accepted. It's fetishized. It's, you know, that old term that's brought in from anthropology, it kind of has a magical power. And that's just then that that's where ideology kind of starts, right? And it covers over the real circumstances under which it is being made and contested and, and, and deployed in an, on a 
direly unequal social fields and it's not going to help us all right there's even with ai right there's still the internet gaps that exist in the world right what about people who don't have internet coverage right the 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 internet gap thing like i mean there's just so many so many factors that this kind of stylized sexy philosophy just kind of and that's why the violence against material <laughs> comes in <laughs> we have to do it because we can we can and yeah of course I'm, I'm excited just... to see this i'm excited that ai is something that i can have a conversation with and and that that's that is very cool stuff but yeah, exactly still gotta eat shit and fuck at the end of the day <laughs> yeah exactly that i mean that's the nuanced view um and i think you're right like but i agree with both of you that it's in the tech world it's kind of taken up uh uncritically but i i also think it's worth it's worth pointing out that that I do think sometimes this critique of techno utopianism and techno optimism ignores the the level at which I feel like our society right now is in a very pessimistic era. So yes, like it almost I think it almost portrays or like over portrays the level to which society actually feels optimistic about this stuff. In my, maybe because I'm in an academic bubble of some kind on Twitter to some extent and obviously in my own life. Um, but it strikes me that the kind of critical attitude, you know, even going back to our early ep or, or one of our earliest episodes where we talked about Bruno Latour and talking about how it has critique lost its steam. I think this drive to constantly problematize every new thing and talk about the implications and be like, well, who's going to own the algorithm and are the algorithms going to be used by corporations and blah, blah. And like, yeah, those are all legitimate questions. Um, but sometimes I feel like that amount of critique where you're constantly problematizing at the expense of what Pills just said before, which is like, this is fucking cool. Like, this is really fucking cool. And it's like, sometimes that perpetual critical attitude prevents us from just acknowledging what is obviously just like a really fucking cool thing. That doesn't mean that you, are, you aren't critical. I think it, it, it's about taking, that's what, that's what it means to be a careful thinker. It's to be able to hold two things in your mind at the same time. And I think like you can do that. You're right. I mean, you're right that it's to just be critical and to say, you know, who's going to own this and what's going to happen. I think that's like that's always going to happen with any new technology. They're going to own it. Someone's going to own it. It won't be me. And I don't really give a fuck about criticizing it on those grounds. What I think needs to be criticized, though, is that they are both inventing the stuff and then deciding on the meaning of stuff. And the thing that I object to is the mythology that they put in the stuff that is coming out at the same time as, as inventing it. And in that mythology, the world is only getting better. When I think it's just a bare fact, it's obvious to everyone who is not them that our lives are already worse than our parents and that trend doesn't seem to be... There's no there's no plan to reverse that trend yeah, either. That's why I, I agree. We do have to remind the critical theorists to enjoy life. No, totally. I and I don't I don't think that I'm I don't think that I meant meant to imply that either of you I see either of you as like fitting into this kind of perpetual critical attitude. More just a broader observation that I do think that that techno utopian attitude um, is pretty minority. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that even outside of academia, to me, at least anecdotally, it doesn't feel like people are that optimistic 
about how amazing it is. It I, like, sold, it's really just Silicon that Valley. That optimism sold a lot of fucking crypto. Yeah, that or that hope oh, for the yeah, hope yeah. for optimism. I know, even. like the whole question of like having to prop up these markets with just saying good things about it is also a horrible question. But I, I know, I think I get, I know what you're getting at, right? Like the critique running out of steam. I mean, it's like making sure that our whatever questions are. Our objects of criticism, our doubt, are genuine and real and not arbitrary and fake and flimsy. It's like, is it Cartesian doubt where we're just kind of arbitrarily yeah. doubting everything, asking questions about things that like, is, is the floor going to be there when I get out of bed in the morning? That's a stupid, stupid question. But then real genuine doubt that like I think Charles Peirce emphasizes more, not these paper doubts. <laughs> if I write it down on paper, thus I doubt it. Like, no, that's not how doubt works, right? It's got to be real and genuine. And just like you, right, you you conform to a certain kind of skepticism, right, that that you would yes. feel yes, eludes do. these issues too. And it's about, you know, the real, it's about the, the efficacy of doubting, I guess, that Again, maybe the pragmatist, the consequences, the the effects, rather than just the doubt exactly. for doubt's sake, which you know the the liberal end of the he's right to question you know what critical theory being taught in the university today is a way of just arbitrarily doubting everything. It's kind of the doubt industry that that seems to comfortably brush shoulders with the this this stem wet dream industry. Yeah, totally. And, and I and I also think one of the things that bothers me about it is just that it's these doubts, this constant doubting and critiquing is premised on I think this idea that there are all these people out there who like really buy into this and that's the hegemony is like oh like society is ruled by I'm like I don't really think that that's true. Like no one's optimistic about anything anymore. I, I like who are these people who think that these things are going to solve all our problems. Like there's a few of them, but I just don't think anyone really believes that. I was reminded of, you know, in the fifties and sixties, you would see these advertisements for like refrigerators on TV and they would say things like the miracles of science. Right. And it's like, yeah. like how cringe would that be today for somebody to actually like appeal to the miracle? Like no one would fucking say that anymore because no one believes oh in that kind of simplistic the like optimistic view of, yeah. of, of science. I mean, the gendered universe of the domestic technology advertisements yeah, are so are so cringy and hilarious today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now how cringy is Coke's new? I've been seeing it at the World Cup. Coke's new thing is uh, their slogan is real magic. So we've moved past we've moved oh, past yeah. science to just again believing in uh, magic. We got to refetishize the commodity yes. like literally i haven't seen i haven't watched a single like, second of the world cup so i have no idea what you're talking about like coca-cola advertisements are the worst for that oh my god they jumped in on like um the protests and like that showed like a someone giving a coca-cola that to was a cop that was pepsi to, like, that was pepsi line. to be fair that was pepsi that was pepsi and oh, that was a real bad. fail my that bad. was a flop of an advertisement yeah it was but coke sorry, does have Coca-Cola. what was this, their old slogan that zizek liked it's like the real thing or the yeah something like that it was like coca-cola like the real thing and the real one <laughs> yeah like don't don't substitute for any fakes but like what the f what the fuck is fake magic how do you have real magic as opposed to fake magic yeah i don't i don't know it's pretty funny i was meant i meant to ask i mean i know we should wrap up but um i, w I thought it could be fun um since our last episode to share any like cool findings 
with the AI chatbot? What kind of experiments have you two done? Anything worth talking about or not really? Uh, I did some experimenting with it. Like um, I would I would grade a grade something and then I would put it into the AI to see if it agreed with my my grading. And it was pretty it was pretty close sometimes. And sometimes it like you just cannot specify what factors it needs to assess. And so it's really, really hard to use it as a grading tool, Definitely. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I kept trying to get it to do was to write in the style of Guitari. Um, and of course, it could not. It didn't even yeah. want to it didn't even want to yeah. try. But I kept I did it in so many different ways because I was like, this would be amazing because Guitari is the the weirdest writer. It couldn't do it, couldn't eh? Do it. Yeah, I think there's big gaps in what it's been trained on. So, I mean, those questions will have to wait. It's probably just got like Reddit philo our philosophy in there and that's it. Yeah, it also said Guitari wrote uh, Simulacra and Simulation. So I don't I don't know. Yes. I don't know oh, what yeah, kind of go. training data it's using. It gets, it gets weird things wrong for sure. So like... Like that's the easiest that does, thing to check, right? Yeah. Anyway, what have you used it for? I've experimented with it lots of different things like eric i i tried to see what it would do when i copy and pasted assignments what kind of a kind of critical evaluation would it give and uh, my experience was similar it's not really worth the risk of using it to grade because it does make some weird mistakes sometimes but it also makes it's just hard to predict um uh to to know whether it's actually but when it does a good job it's good i mean it it says more things than i would say because i'm lazy <laughs> so what it does really well that i don't do very well when i'm giving feedback is it's set it's it opens with a really positive remark it'll say like what the thing does well and i tend to just skip that and go right to how the student fucked up <laughs> oh, well that's nice you can uh, write your positive remarks yeah. for you that would be uh time saving exactly but i also okay the most the, the funniest thing i got it to do was to have a conversation with me where it was pretending to be a therapist in the style of Carl Rogers' humanist approach. And it was a bit contorted because you had to continue to be like, okay, give me a hypothetical response as my therapist. And then like you have to frame it and then it'll give a response um, and then it'll explain why it gave that response. It would be like, I would say this because it would make the patient feel more secure about this and this and this. And then I would be like, and then you have to tell it, like, ask me a follow-up as this. And, you know, it was not very deep in what it was asking. And I'm sure, you know, someone really trained in that method would be like, this is complete bullshit. But it was cool that it was actually able to keep up the conversation uh, in that way. And if you, I don't know if you've tried this too. You can just tell it, be like, ask me a question. And it'll, 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 it'll engage and... Um, yeah, it'll engage in a conversation with you and ask you stuff and then ask you follow-ups based on how you respond. So in a way, it just creates more work for us, which which puts me in mind of my closing thoughts, <laughs> which are that I remember we were doing the the um, the Cybersyn project stuff and I had my mind was full of Stafford beer and he was talking about the way we introduce computers into society is supposed to be to solve our problems and make things easier, but we do not do it that way. We, When we introduce computers, it tends to make things harder and much less efficient than things that were already being done much more efficiently. And I was looking at Marx's chapter on machines and capital, and he says, you know, you'd think that the introduction of machines into manufacturing 
in the transition into full-scale industrial production would have made less work, but it actually deepened the wage slavery and servitude and made the work much more intense <laughs> and made the exploitation occur at a much higher rate than in handicraft manufacturing style when things were still kind of subjectively yeah, organized. Then you have this, this objective organization guided by machines, which humans become the appendages of. And so AI is just going to deepen that. <laughs> and, and with Stafford Beer's kind of more technocratic take, <laughs> it's going to make things harder, not easier for us, because we're just going to be combing through bullshit to work out the mistakes instead yes. of just doing the fucking work ourselves exactly. the first time. Exactly. But we still keep these idealist dreams that once it's been trained on the right content, then none of those problems will be there anymore. So let's just eat shit until then. Okay, great. <laughs> well, there will be, there will be a new form of. I want to call it literacy. It won't be actual literacy, but it'll be a new form of uh, literacy in in terms of like getting the right output from an AI, like what you're actually kind yes. of looking for. That'll be a new skill. Yes, exactly. I totally agree yeah. with that. Um, yeah, I, research I, skills. I told one of the things I said to this administrative person and professor who are asking about the implications for the university, I, I said, like, this is something that is going to make it so that a lot of undergrads could just not bother learning how to be a good writer and get by. Yeah, but... You we don't need uh, to be good writers. But though. you have to be good at But if you want to yeah. get A's, you have to understand how, what you still have to be a good writer because you have to be able to recognize, is that output actually right. good enough? So you'd actually, you'd have to actually know the content in order to, it's like kind of like uh, using calc, people, I wonder if people were like decrying the death of math education when calculators came out, but it, it just exactly. develops yeah, a new skill exactly. and then you, they change the format of testing. So, you know, you have to show your work rather than then get the right answer. So maybe that maybe something like that happens. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I know with phones and social media, they're reading and writing more than ever before. They're just not doing it in the way we want them to be. So we consider it illiteracy. It's a f like look at our distinctions again. Um, it's they're not good. But I mean, this is all folded into a big history of information technology, right? Scroll to the codex, codex to the printed book. Analog storage to digital storage, now AI retrieval tools. Like it's just, you know, I want to see a, a I want to see a transhumanist write that fucking history and pay attention to the changing modes of production of knowledge production instead of just trumpeting the potential benefits of long life and and AI slaves. <laughs> There's a there's a technological posthumanist point in there in there Victor with each there's an oral mind and then an alphabetic mind and then a a book mind and now whatever a uh, a computer a social media smartphone mind it's all part of the apparatus the conceptual superstructure yeah so there. whatever whatever the AI mind if it, I don't know how much it's going to be used but we'll we'll n now be moving into an AI. An AI mind inside of us, not just inside the uh, machine. Just count on things getting stupider and and <laughs> easier, both stupider and easier. Yes, exactly. Will there will be a new um, phenomenon which will be kind of clear but stupid? Right. Will be the new norm. 
whereas before but which is kind of nice because it was really annoying to deal with unclear yeah yeah it's like clear but stupid like analytic philosophy i know you i i know you <laughs> can do it but why would you i don't endorse that statement but yes i guess the the point remains that it will still be commodifying our data and doing all that classic bullshit we discussed on the techno feudalism episode just with it like the the emergent mode of production i guess <laughs> interacting with the dominant capitalist mode that's what's going what if instead of mass advertising every single ad was like built by an ai on the spot just for you like do you think advertising would work on you at that point uh, God, I turn off no, all I, my personalization I this is my settings. One prediction that I guarantee you will be true is that you'll get an ad written by an AI that's only for you. And each ad will be different. Oh, for sure. There won't be advertising campaigns. I mean, if yeah, an I ad- love the way Spotify, Amazon recommends products, they think I might be interested based on my history. I mean, but it's, they're always it terrible. Trouble. It's like, oh, you bought a chair. Do you want another chair? No, you fucking idiot. I already bought one. <laughs> that's why I don't need it anymore. <laughs> That's my kind of shopping. I feel that advertising doesn't work on me (laughs) there, but I want it to like, like I want an ad to actually show me something that I want. Yeah. So if it can Uh, do that, sweet. (laughs) Show me something that I actually want. The old dictum. I know it doesn't work, but anyway. (laughs) No, no, but, but that's the thing is like, I'm not claiming that it doesn't work on me because like my self-experience of being a consumer i'm one of those people who obsessively does research and read reviews before i buy anything that i want so i so if i see something that's advertised to to me uh that i don't know that i want it always ends up going through that process of, of kind of investigation but i would be very impressed if, if, if somehow an AI could learn that that's what I do and would only give me things that it would somehow know would pass my smell test. That well, would be you awesome. know what companies are going to use this AI mm. for? Is it going to be to pretend to be pr- people on the internet and develop entire profiles of people and then they will be the ones recommending their own products to you? It'll be you'll go to Reddit and you'll be like for targeted this is the greatest this is the greatest gamer chair I've ever bought and it's actually just a piece of shit because a bot is writing it to you. That's true. That's a risk, right? That's a risk. So that's why you have to go to suspicious about reviews. Yeah. Well that's why you read lots of reviews and you, you you look for inconsistencies. Yeah. We'll have to look at what other people's personal ad bots are recommending to them and be like, I think mine's broken. It, it keeps telling me to have these these greens plus uh, supplements. I don't want them. Like like I just had to buy a new beer trimmer because mine old one died, and I spent I probably spent a couple hours looking into what the best option is. But if some advertising bot could just save that time for me and tell me this is what you're gonna want, that would be great. And it is great, by the way. After spending that time, I got it. It's it's awesome. It's the f- Hey, it has I'm, replaceable I'm bleeping blades. that out. <laughs> Unless <laughs> maybe it wants to sponsor this podcast. We're not advertising for free. Yeah, Yo, we no, did I, advertise. I really like it. We so did far. advertise yeah. bidets for a few episodes. Yeah, we did. 
Yeah. Maybe we should be more practical with it. Like if it could uh, tell me when I should vote yes on strike mandates and write our demands for us using like quantified, like what, what we could get out of our employers, like then, yeah, it can write our bargaining uh, statements for Interesting. us. Tell us when to strike. Tell us when our bosses are going to dock our pay by like uh, cutting off print privileges or something and indirectly give us pay cuts. And it'll warn us about them and say, this is what you have to do now. Contact these people, get a strike going and reverse that bullshit immediately. And why stop there? You could also just have like an AI, you input your preferences and then it can go out and do all the votes for you. You can you don't have to be a real democratic subject, a responsible democratic subject anymore. Just say... I prefer the left or left-leaning option of any choice. So just pick, go find all the candidates' platforms and pick that. Yeah, me. yeah. Find me who to vote for. Tell me when the revolution's coming. Give me a, give me an idea of what my best next next investment is. <laughs> Chat GPT. How do you plan a successful revolution? Yeah, just go through all the ones that have worked in the past and how they maintained. Why don't I stuff. ask it and then we'll end with that response? Okay. <laughs> How do I plan a How successful? How could the Cybersyn project have worked better? How could they have maintained those How games? How do I plan a successful revolution? Maintain the game, baby. How did Cybersyn go wrong? Okay, so it's, oh, it's giving me some interesting stuff here. Oh, wow, it's giving me a list of steps. Okay. Uh-huh. Wow, it's actually like, that's funny. Um, okay, a, a successful, it's still writing, but I'll start reading. A successful, <laughs> a successful revolution is not just about overthrowing a government or regime, but also about implementing a new system that is fair, just, and sustainable. To plan a successful revolution, here are some steps to consider. One, (laughs) identify the root cause of the current situation that needs to be changed. This could be political, economic, social, or environmental issues. Two, build a coalition of people who share the same vision and goals for the revolution. This can include various groups, organizations, and individuals who are willing to work together towards a common cause. Three, develop a clear and detailed plan that outlines the specific steps, strategies, and tactics that will be used to achieve the desired outcome. This could include the roles and responsibilities of each member of the coalition, as well as the resources uh, and support that will be needed. Four, communicate the plan to the broader public to gain their support. This can involve organizing public meetings, rallies, or other events to raise awareness and generate support for the revolution. Five, be prepared for potential challenges and setbacks. This could include resistance from the current government and its supporters, as well as potential <laughs> violence and conflict. It is important to have oh, con- shit. <laughs> it is important to have contingency plans in place and to be prepared for any eventuality. And finally, six, after the revolution is successful, work towards implementing the new system and addressing the issues that led uh, to the need for change. This could involve creating new policies, laws, and systems that are fair and just and addressing the needs and concerns of the people. There you have it. <laughs> an there AI, you go. An AI-generated plan for revolution. The final step is the Great Terror. I didn't mention that. <laughs> well, and the books. I'll see you guys on the barricades. Thank you, everybody. Yep. Yeah. That's so practical. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>